Welcome to Profiles. I'm your host, Shauna Ritter, and our guest is Chad Rabinovitz. Chad is the producing artistic director of the Bloomington Playwrights Project, the only professional theater in Indiana focused solely on new plays. Chad's been with us in Bloomington since 2009, following a series of uh, directing experiences, acting experiences in workshops across the country and work and playhouses across the country, as well as studying theater at the University of Pittsburgh. Welcome to Profiles. It's great to be here. Great. Chad, when you were uh, in university back a ways, you majored in business and theater? A little bit of an odd combo for many people. Tell me about that. Well, uh, there's always that balance of practicality uh, and artistic desire in life that was uh, greatly instilled by my parents. I was uh, a little bit of a businessman growing up. When I was in middle school, I used to sell pencils and erasers. How'd that go to my for you? Fr- It was rocking. I, uh, my, my dad ran the school store at, at the elementary school that he worked at. And so I got these pencils that were pretty – they weren't just like number two. They were twisty, cool-looking pencils. I got them wholesale for $0.10, cents and I'd sell them to my friends for a dollar. So before class – it's true. I used to make like an extra 10 bucks a What'd day. What did you do with the money? Uh, I, I really liked to play Game Boy games, and I just liked to buy stuff as a kid. So, yeah. And I, and I was a saver too. No, no. If my parents hear that, that's a lie. I bought games. Okay. And so I was always kind of interested in business uh, uh, and found new ways of making money. I worked since I was 14, starting washing dishes and then at McDonald's for two years and then even ran a movie theater at one point in time. Uh, and so business was kind of always a part of me and I fell into theater along the way, uh, kind of after business. How did you fall into theater? Uh, well, I, I grew up since the age of eight uh, – obsessed with magic. Uh, and that was, and for people who know me, I have a very obsessive personality. So I don't just kind of like something. My whole life becomes about that. And so when I was eight and I saw David Copperfield escape from Alcatraz, that's pretty much what my life was. David Copperfield, of course, we're talking about the magician. The magician. No, not, not the, Dickens novel, the Dickens novel, which I have assistant directed, but <laughs> which is not, it's just disappointing every time that it's not, there's no magic happening in it. Uh, yeah, I was a. Uh, I, I did magic, and in high school, I ended up starting a business with that. And I was a professional children's magician called the Candyman, because uh, I decided, well, if there's going to be, if I'm going to do magic and I want to sell myself, what do kids want? And I was also obsessed with candy and food. I said, well, I want to see only magic with food. So that was my whole act. It was a 45 minute bit where I turned sugar into candy bars, and I'd made peanut butter and jelly disappear. And uh, I was running my own, you know, uh, magic business, and uh, I, I don't know if I should get into this too soon, but I, I ended up in uh, theater through magic, and then ultimately... Well, I want to hear the two. connect. So you had your own magic business. You started doing theater in your senior year of high school, is that right? Sophomore year. Sophomore year of high school. I essentially got cut from the basketball team. Sadly, uh, which I don't, I mean, if you look at me, I'm a superstar athlete kind of physical body. Uh, just go with me on that. Uh, that goes with your U.E. Lewis <laughs> and the, the news t-shirt, t-shirt, right? Yes. And my Crocs. It's uh, just a vet masculine outerwear. Uh, and so I didn't make the basketball team. I was in, uh, oh, some sort of social studies class. And we had to give a presentation in the class uh, and the, my partner was named Steve, and 
Steve said to me after the presentation, he said, oh, you know, you're you're a decent public speaker. Maybe you should be in this show that I'm in. And I said, I'm sorry. I'm I'm not a loser. I don't do theater. I don't do theater. <laughs> and at the same time, I was in uh, this drama class, which in my high school drama was not about you know, training to do theater. It was a strictly a self-esteem course. That's it. This is in Maryland, if I'm Maryland, right? yeah. Yeah, we didn't have an actual theater. Uh, and by self-esteem, I mean, it, that was why it was in the curriculum. Right. When I later wanted to do more theater, that's what I was actually flat out told. And that's why I couldn't add more classes. So I, I did a performance for that class. I did do a storytelling thing. And, and the drama teacher said, hey, you should join stage lighters and I said well, what's stage lighters and well that's you know our drama club and I said I'm, I'm sorry I'm not a loser and so I didn't do I still you know stayed away from it and then eventually uh, I was walking down the hall at the end of the school day and I remember this girl named Amanda Lewis uh, who I didn't know hardly at all at that time uh, looked at me and said hey Chad I heard you're uh, auditioning for the school play and I said, uh, what? <laughs> no, I'm not. Uh, but Amanda later became my prom date as I got to know her so you can figure out how I ended up auditioning for that show. And uh, the, only, the audition was me and no one else. So I got the role. There you go. And, and so that's how, uh, yeah, my magic made me comfortable performing and... and I ended up in the And theater. Amanda made you want to join the club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So isn't it interesting, though, that when you're in high school, you think of the drama club or the theater group as being losers, and yet when we grow up, we worship uh, movie stars as if they were royalty. How does that happen? It comes with that notion of celebrity. When everyone knows you, all of a sudden, it's cool. And I think really, uh, I don't know how in tune I am with high schools anymore, but it's becoming... It feels less and less to me like the uncool thing to do. And and it it wasn't necessarily so, you know, I say loser more as a joke because it wasn't that I didn't do it because of that. It's that I had no idea what it was. I didn't see a play growing up in my entire life. So I can remember, I think I was a, a fiddler in uh, third grade or something on stage. Uh, and other than that, I mean, theater wasn't really a part of it. I didn't go out to see plays and... uh I just had no connection to it whatsoever. Actually, I remember vividly that finding out my sophomore year that my high school had performed Little Shop of Horrors. That's a major musical with a giant man-eating plant. And I, quite honestly, had no idea it even happened. I just uh, was oblivious to that part. I was playing, uh, well, trying to play basketball. Uh, and I was playing lacrosse. I was really big into tennis back then. And so, you know, it just wasn't a part of my life. And then I... Uh, I kind of made my way into what I now feel is super cool. So after your date with Amanda at the prom and you went away to university, what made you decide to pursue theater at that point? It was the challenge of it. Uh, I went into theater, uh, as most people do, I think, uh, as an actor. And in my sophomore year of college, I took a directing class and uh, with Stephen Coleman, uh, who was the first person to really, uh, you know, kind of made theater an intellectual game for me, and it, and it was really super challenging. Plus, it, it, it doesn't hurt that I'm not a terribly great actor. Um, you know, I, didn't, I don't think I ever would have made a career as that, but what challenged me and what interested me and motivated me was 
directing. And so this directing class all of a sudden was a ton of work. I mean, I had to read so many texts and, and do so many rehearsal projects. I remember doing a, a Waiting for Godot, a two-minute scene. I had to write a 12-page paper on any scene that we did. So it was 12 pages of analysis on this two minutes and then rehearsing and then more you know, reading behind that. So that all of a sudden became this intellectual gap that I had between business of what interests me and, and theater and kind of made it tangible. I said, mm-hmm. oh, I, I think I, I, can, I can do this. Now, is there anything you miss about acting from yeah. your stance as a director? And then I'll talk more about um, what it means to be a producing artistic director, which is something else again. Sure. I, you know, I, I just, no. No? <laughs> no. No, I don't, I don't have any interest in doing that. Uh, there, I mean, there's, this, there's sort of that excitement uh, all the time of, you know, after you perform, that applause and, you know, all that, that stuff. But to be honest, I don't even, I don't watch my own shows. Uh, after a show's open, I, I, as the director, as a director, I, I, I want nothing to do with the show after it's open because I'm terribly nervous about whether or not people will like what I've done. And it's not just the three weeks of rehearsal that are on stage. It's all the prep work of, uh, oftentimes months of work, uh, that goes into it. And every, you know, it's not just, oh, this is what I did. This is every single thing that I can pour into one piece of art. It's there. It's on stage. And at that moment, you're not laughing and I'm really upset. You know, I want to, I want that reaction. Um, and so I'll pop in and out. Uh, and so I don't know that I have the stomach for being up on stage and, and doing that. So now I just do this whole public speaking I've stuff. Heard and, you. And, and, and <laughs> now, now I just, I combine the, the theater and the business and I, sell the product. Uh, (laughs) Let me back up for a minute. Um, You know, when you think about acting, or when I think about acting, I can identify a number of different approaches to acting, method acting, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But when I think about directing, I realize, you know, a lot of directors flash through my mind, but I don't really know very much about schools of directing or approaches to directing. Are there? And if so, where do you fall on that? That's probably the most misunderstood level of of the art film and theater tv uh most people don't know what a director does to get into that conversation in the first place it's you know we we know steven spielberg uh directed a you know whatever movie and we start liking the movies that he's done but a lot of people can't say well what does the director do Mm -hmm. to make it what it is that you like and for me there's, I mean, there's there's many different types. So in the basic example, uh, there's uh, a type of director who would pre-block everything. And pre-block means that uh, I'm going to tell every single actor exactly where to go uh, from point A to point B. Uh, and this is actually how I was taught uh, with uh, this text called um, Directing by uh, uh, Hodge. And uh, you would, before I even get into the rehearsal room, I'd mark out, I draw a map of where everyone was going. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to find impulses of why they would move there and how that tells a story. You want to create levels so people are up and people mm-hmm. are down so it's interesting to watch. Uh, and then there's a, a more organic type of person who is going to sit back and say, I have prepared nothing and here you go. I just want to see what happens. Um, now that's an extreme. Not a lot of people would prepare nothing, I would hope. Uh, and for me, I'm, I'm in between. So the director is facilitator or the director as orchestrator, so yeah, to speak. Yeah, I think it's a good way of putting it. But but that overlooks what those uh, the myriad of things that 
and a director does. I mean, if if the play is too slow, that's the director. Is it you know? Is it does it move too fast? Is it plotting? Even though you have a costume designer, light designer, set designer, every single thing that you see on stage is the director's fault. Even though a costume designer, you know, you could say, oh, man, that purple shirt is hideous and it doesn't work at all. That's the costume designer who did it. The director is the one who's facilitated that and said, OK, let's keep it. Mm-hmm. I don't come up with every single idea. Uh, and that's the whole for me. What what makes it um, what makes me work is I, I don't want to come up with every idea. I surround myself by intelligent people who can share all these ideas and I can choose yes or no. But everything in the end is my fault. You didn't like it. It's my fault. The casting uh, is, you know, whether or not the person's in the right role, director's fault. Because it's your responsibility to make it work. My responsibility to make it work within the given time that we have. And sometimes you can say, oh, well, I only had a week to do this. Um, But there is constraints that make it more difficult. And I'd back up and say, well, you know, if I had another week, this wouldn't be my fault. But ultimately, the job is to look at how much time you have, what are the resources you have, and create the best product. That's the visually, that's audibly, uh, that's finding the dramatic action. I mean, pay, taking a basic script, uh, and you can see it with people do this with Shakespeare all the time, add this you know crazy concept onto mm-hmm. it, and take a, words on a page and make it the completely opposite or, or change complete meaning. Director has a lot of power to do, to create their artistic product. And so if you see a moment on stage that isn't working, whether someone is facing the wrong angle or you notice, hey, I'm on the side here and I don't get as much, you know, this isn't moving in a way that makes sense to me or I see enough, um, or it isn't magical enough or it's too serious. Mm -hmm. That's the director. What about the relationship between the director and the actor? We we hear that mythologized a lot. The mm-hmm. director, you know, brought out the best in this actor. Or this actor couldn't work with that director. How you've talked a lot, sort of, about the the setting of the play and the some of the technological and physical aspects of of setting a play. What about the relationship between the director and the actor? Well, it's it's one of the most important things. I mean, uh, theater is a collaborative art form. It's one. It's what I. Uh, one of the things I enjoy the most about it, I mean, you can go home and, and paint a picture and that's solely about you and your experience on on the, you know, canvas. But for me, theater is about sharing your ideas with all these folks. And with acting, an actor brings different ideas to, to the table. So that's why for me, pre-blocking doesn't work. Because if I tell you, you have to move here to here, I'm ignoring the fact that they could have a better idea. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see. And so being able to have someone you can work with that takes your ideas and makes them better, that's the key. If I can tell you, hey, I want you to be angry here, and they do exactly what I asked for, that's not what I want. I, I'm all hoping for an actor with I've, who I have a relationship with that can say, oh, he's saying angry, but let me do one better than that. This is what he means. Let me can I actually understand what he's saying? Because there's some people you can talk to and it doesn't feel like you're ever getting through. Right. Uh, So, yeah, I think it's good. So that's the role of the director in terms of working on on one play or one piece. What's the role of the producing artistic director, which is, of course, the role you're in now at Bloomington Playwrights Project? It's that plus at the producing. Uh, I mean, (laughs) uh, it's... uh, it tends to be a lot. Uh, ultimately, if the directors – you hire a director to direct the shows. I happen to direct some of the shows as in my role. Mm-hmm. 
But an artistic director is going to hire the directors. They choose who the directors are and what plays are going to be produced. I mean, my job is to tap into the community and say, this is what people want to see. And it's a little harder with new plays because it's an untested resource. So we're creating something that I feel is going to speak to the Bloomington audience and the surrounding areas and bring people in, sell tickets, but also, you know, be artistically valuable. Uh, And so finding, you know, in a new play theater, finding those plays is number one challenge of of the AD. There's, we receive a thousand plays a year uh, on average. And that's a lot to sink through and say, hey, this is what, this is what speaks to us. Uh, So as an artistic director, I do that. As producing artistic director, I'm overseeing the annual operating budget, overseeing the marketing and development and taking a business model, which is inherently flawed. Uh, I mean, if you look at new plays or or theater in general, it's a hard sell. There's a reason Mm -hmm. it's a nonprofit industry. It's difficult to make a profit. So you find (laughs) your income from other ways. Well, now you're taking this difficult to make a profit product and saying, you know what, I want to do things that only people haven't heard of. And I want to make, you know, I want to support this whole business on it. And so producing big, my big uh, position as producing artistic director is figure out how to do that. How do we get people excited about these new plays and, in my mind, uh, revive the theater industry, mm-hmm. you know, that's really uh, stuck on recycling. Right. So Bloomington Playwrights Project does have that unique mission, mm-hmm. um, which is to produce and showcase new work, uh, which is very exciting. But how do you... How do you choose that? How do you know which plays stand out? And then, as you mentioned, not only which plays stand out for you, but which plays are going to be supported by our community in Bloomington and South Central Indiana? That is a very good question. Glad. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> I mean, one, one uh, for lack of a more intelligent answer, it's trial and error a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's gut feeling. Uh, there are certain uh, aspects of plays that I think work across the board. You know, for me, a good play is a good play. Uh, and so that is something that has a beginning, middle, and end, has a story that I care about, characters that I'm invested in, and a dramatic action that's interesting and keeps me guessing. Uh, so I think a well-written play is the key, and, you know, I'll hopefully never produce an, uh, a play that's not well-written. What makes a well-written play? Uh, well, all those things, something that is engaging. Uh, you know, if I, if I know what's going to happen from the very beginning... It's it's sort of uh, leaving enough mystery for me to be constantly engaged enough to want to continue watching. You know, you're talking about an hour and a half, two hours. Uh, you a film has that luxury of being able to change the angle of the camera right. and keep you engaged visually. Well, if we're you know keeping the same set or or creating different pieces of sets, I need to look at that play and say, does this move in a way that is engaging? Uh, does it have something to say? And ultimately, is it believable? Uh, and sometimes you look at things, well, is it realism? Is it magical realism? Is this, you know, something that's heightened and exciting? Is it a musical? What am I wanting to fill there? And then in the end, uh, you know, I have to have something that I feel passionate about from the subject matter standpoint. If I just saw, you know, an entire play about, you know, why uh, hot air balloons are the most important thing uh, ever invented. I don't know if that's uh, a good example for one or something that I'm ready to, you know, is it speak to me in some way? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's probably where it starts going into the community. Is this something that is impactful and matters right now? Uh, you know, we did something 
You know, if we, if we did a show two years ago about, you know, uh, green living, mm-hmm. you know, that's a hot topic stuff. That's an easy answer. Um, but, uh, you know, we're about to do uh, the Truman Show. Right. And the reason I picked the Truman Show is because reality TV is hugely present right now. And it's something that we can talk about. And if you had the option to uh, have this perfect life, but it wasn't real, would you make that decision? And I think that's, uh, you know, a very imperative uh, story to tell. Uh, our, uh, we're commissioning a, a play called Spun, a, a rock musical, and it's a brother-sister rock musical that's going to explore the notions of truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, you know, when you have this he said, she said storytelling and uh, who's right, who's wrong, does it matter? Is it, is it the truth that matters or is it the relationship? These are things that are at least interesting to me, and I can see those being picked up in other elements of shows that people have been intrigued by. And so I said, well, this is what I want to write about. I think if there's anything that New Place offers the most advantage for is that we don't have to take a past play and adapt it to make meeting. I don't have to take Romeo and Juliet mm-hmm. and say, well, this is how I can make it important now. We're writing about now. Everything that we do is about right now and how our audience can you know connect with uh, the story that we're telling because it's about today. So I get I get extremely excited about it. Cause, I can tell. Hey, <laughs> do you want to write? Does it ever make you want to co-write or be a playwright as well as the direction piece of it? Um, yeah, yeah. I, you know, uh, I I do like to write, and uh, I oftentimes go home and catalog some ideas. Uh, and, you know, sometimes I have a hand in some of the Blizzard plays, but I'm not, a, you know, I've not a writer. Blizzard are the quickly produced plays. Yeah, the quickly plays. produced plays. 24 hours, And right? there's some Get people like, uh, yeah, like uh, Gabe Gloden, the managing director, Emily Goodson. They're great writers who are writing some really witty stuff. Uh, I like to do stuff sometimes, but I also don't want to take advantage of my position and say, hey, we're going to produce my play because <laughs> I really think what I did is, is great. So I'm kind of, you know, taking these ideas, writing on occasion and and – Waiting till the till a time where it doesn't feel uh, conceited to <laughs> to bring about. Before you came to Bloomington in two thousand and nine, you had had a pretty wide array of experiences as an education director, assistant artistic director, in a wide array of settings. Everything from Westport, Connecticut, to out in Colorado, and I noticed that you've studied in. Cuba and in a variety of Brazil, a variety of other countries. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, if you're, if you're going to think about some of the things you um, garnered from your experiences that you're applying now as producing artistic director at BPP, what are they? Oh, man, it's a lot. We just picked I mean, out a few. Yeah. I mean. Well, I mean, everything is based on, on experiences. Uh, I think the best example, uh, I ran a theater company in Crested Butte, Colorado, a small company, and... Uh, it was kind of my training ground to really learn a lot. There's a lot of things that I, I feel I did uh, poorly there. There's a lot of things I think I did well. Uh, and in a lot of ways, the BPP gets to benefit from my failures in mm-hmm. previous places. I learned in Colorado about uh, what a close-knit you know, community was, uh, how to operate in that kind of a space, how to speak to a community and, and how to engage them. Uh, and artistically, I think, successfully. Uh, business, uh, from business standpoint, less so. In Westport, uh, uh, Westport Country Playhouse, we're, we're now talking about going from $150,000 theater to, you know, a 
uh, $6 million theater that just finished a $30 million capital campaign program. We're talking about a whole different scale. It was learning, you know, the yin and yang, the whole big difference. And I watched this new artistic director come in, Taswell Thompson, and I remember uh, one of the most important things I took out of that is I watched him come in and speak before every show. He gave the curtain speech all the time. Um, and for better or worse, for those people who are tired of hearing me do a curtain speech, I'm taking that from him. I saw him in the audience uh, or after each show mm-hmm. there. I saw him talk to as many groups as possible. And that had a tremendous impact on me. Because, uh, and it wasn't until I came here that I saw it be so true that people want to support individuals. I mean, they'll, they'll be behind the mission uh, and the excitement of the entity. But, uh, you know, there's not a lot of people who grew up saying, ah, you know what, I can't wait to go out and support new plays. They need someone to come out and, and uh, be that voice. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately, they want to support the voice. Right. And so I took that from, from yeah. Taz being there all the time. I've in three years I I've uh was uh ill for for one of the uh curtain speeches. And and I don't miss anything. I don't I, I haven't missed another one and I'm there at the end of every show because I want people to be able to tell me they hated it or loved it. I want people to you know, associate that with me, the BPP is as someone that they can support as an entity or individually. And so, I, you know, I took that and, and I watched the different successes and failures of, of Westport and of uh, the theater I was in, in in West Virginia, Greenbrier Valley Theater. Again, now we're talking in between those two and seeing how mm-hmm. that operates. Uh, the other big thing I took from, uh, especially from Westport, was company management. I've learned that if I'm going to run any organization, I want it to be the best place, hands down, to work for in town, anywhere. Because, uh, you know, one, it's just a part of who I want to be, the, the place I'm going to spend. You know, I, I spend so much time there right. from morning till the end. You know, it, I'm not even going to admit it. Um, it's the first time you've been out all week. Isn't <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, but, you know, it is, it's so much. And, and, and if there's what you, you want to be able to stand behind what you're doing artistically, but also just as a human being and what you do. And I saw the this company manager, Bruce Miller, take such great care of everyone who was mm-hmm. there. And it's harder for us because I don't have a full staff that can dedicate to that. So mm-hmm. we just find ways of making sure, you know, I, I created a company management budget is one of the first things it did. Make sure that people feel cared for. Because in an environment where so many people are volunteering or working for less pay than they're worth, mm-hmm. and I have to acknowledge that. If you're working at the BPP, most likely you're more valuable than what I'm showing you financially. So I have to show you in another way. And that is is through caring for what you do and showing appreciation. And so that I learned that and I don't I didn't have that in Crusty Butte. I had to pick that up along the way. You know, I, I wanna think I was still a nice person to work for back then, but it's difference there's a difference between being nice and showing it and, and making sure it's perceived. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the perception that I hope at the end of the day everyone has is that it's a great company to be, you know, to visit, to work for, to be engaged in any way. I'm Shauna Ritter, and you're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Our guest is Chad Rabinovitz, and he is the producing artistic director at the Bloomington Playwrights Project here in Bloomington. We're going to take a short break to listen to a song. We're going to listen to one that you picked out, Chad, which is The Origin of Love All right, cool. from Hedvig and the Angry Inch. Now, why did you 
pick that out as one of your favorite songs? Uh, I, th- I think one, it's just a beautiful song. Uh, it is the first show uh, that I ever saw that changed my way of thinking about theater. Uh, I went on this New York trip, and we saw all these first time uh, going to see Broadway shows. This was a a eleven o'clock or midnight showing that we just happened to get tickets to as a group. I helped with the organization of this, and and someone had gotten this group discount. I was like, oh, I don't want to see this. You know, my musical interests are pretty limited, and I'm like, I don't want to see this crazy rock musical. Uh, you know, about a transsexual uh, with a botched sex change. So I, I ended up seeing the show, and it was the first time that I just didn't know what to do with myself. Like, after the show, it was this feeling of, uh, I couldn't believe what I saw. From the, the first song in it was so rock, you know, so heavy metal uh, inspired them. Like, mm-hmm. oh, crap, this is not for me. I want to go to a show that I know the name of. <laughs> so take me. Uh, and my parents like, why aren't you seeing Cats? Uh, and ultimately... Uh, the second song was The Origin of Love in that show, and it just wrote me in. And from that, it was such a touching – I mean, this is such a beautiful, a touching story about uh, the the origin of love and finding your other half. I, I was ultimately moved, and by the end, I, I, when I say I didn't know what to do with myself, I was, like, jostling around in my chair, and I'm like, I don't know how to react to what I just saw. Uh, this was the most exciting thing I was ever part of. And the next day, I went back to see the show again. When the earth was still flat And clouds made of fire And mountains stretched up to the sky Sometimes higher Folks roamed the earth like big rolling kegs They had two sets of arms They had two sets of legs They had two faces peering out of one giant head So they could watch all around them As they talked while they read And they never knew nothing of love It was before been listening to The Origin of Love for Hedwig and the Angry Inch, and we're talking with Chad Rabinovitz uh, during Profiles on WFIU. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Um, Chad, before you were talking about one of the things you love about theater being the collaborative nature of theater work, how does it work in a town like Bloomington, which is a fairly small town but with a big artistic scene, um, to be collaborating with other theaters in town, uh, Indiana University, Cardinal, um, Diversity Theater. uh, There's a number of other theater groups around. How do you work with them and how do you support each other? Well, it's one of the luxuries of Bloomington. It's a great artistic community. There's a lot of theater going on. I think uh, cross-promotion is always the easiest way that you can get uh, you know, people involved. Uh, I give in my curtain speech, I say there are 
we do five main stage shows. There are 365 days in a year. So even after you see all of our shows four times, you still have 345 days to see other shows in town. Uh, so number one, it's let's let's create a theater going audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a struggle. I mean, when you have so many other things to compete with, film being the number one, and you're you're developing not just someone who's going to come see my shows five times a year, but people who are going to be theater goers because they're even if you don't see my show, and you're going to see Cardinal, you're going to IU, you're more likely down the road if you see a couple great shows, you know, at Cardinal and IU, and I'm sure you will, then that person's more likely to come see, you know, to the BPP later. So it, it all benefits everyone if people are going out. Uh, I believe heavily in collaboration. I think uh, our theaters come a long way, you know, and uh, that's, I tell everyone, that's one of the big things, collaborating within the community, with businesses, uh, and with other theaters. Uh, we partner with IU on a new musical every year, uh, and the goal of that is to bring uh an opportunity to the students that they mm-hmm. can't get, they might not be able to get through IU. Uh, it affords us the talent that we need to do a large-scale musical that we might not otherwise be able to do at the same level. And at the same time, I'm able to now bring in these major artists uh, like we do for the Truman shows. We have some Broadway talent that's going to be involved with that, uh, which is amazing. Uh, Maggie Cassidy uh, uh, was the first musical that we ever that was ever done, first stage show or even film of any kind about the life of Jack Kerouac that we were the first to get the rights for in, in May. and It was a great show, by the uh, way. Thank you very much. And, yeah, and, and that was, we brought in folks from New York to see that and from Seattle who commissioned it. We're developing that for a theater that's 72 times the budget of ours. And they came out uh, to see it because we're developing it for them. So now the students and IU and BPP are connected to this larger entity on the other side of the country and these New York agents who are coming to see it. And when the students do showcases in New York to get work, now they have some connections. And at the same time, we're developing our national reputation because for a new play, all I care about is that Bloomington is a starting point. If I'm just doing a really fun play that that's here, well, great. We did nine performances. And that playwright makes a couple bucks and... You know, mm-hmm. we all leave at the end of the day, and, and uh, ultimately, it's exciting for everyone involved, the actors, if they're originating a role that goes elsewhere. It's exciting for my audience uh, and our patrons to feel like, hey, we're seeing this show, and it's moving to, like, uh, whether it's moving to Seattle, we have a show, Three Views of the Same Object, we did in the spring. It's going to be in L.A., directed by David Anspaugh, from, who directed Hoosiers and Rudy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is now making us a part of the national community, and everyone who's a part of that benefits. So I want to ask you about how um, sort of the inception of a new play from the time it enters a contest to the time it gets on stage and then goes off. But before I do that, as a director of a play that's that's coming up for the first time in a theater, how easy is it for you to let it go then out to L.A. and know that it's going to change, it's going to morph, it's going to shift the way it has an approach because there's a new director taking over? Uh, Do you have any pangs? (laughs) You know, I honestly honestly don't. I kind of just, uh, I feel like I know my part in it, and my part is simply to get it ready uh, and to move on. Uh, Usually, any, any play that I've done, I always feel has the ability to grow more. So I don't feel like my work is ever done in the three weeks that we have it. Maggie Cassidy is a good example. It 
I mean, we wrote, rewrote the ending. We wrote the middle, the dramatic action. By we, I mean uh, the, I was working with the playwright. Uh, yeah, we have a strict it. policy. We don't change any words. The playwright is gospel in theater. Um, but Chris Jeffries, was, uh, he was wonderful to work with and very mm-hmm. open to it. We added new songs. We deleted songs. And still, after all that's done, we've only, we, we don't have a preview. A normal Broadway show will have weeks of previews to edit and change. Whatever we do is what it is for those, you know, three weeks that we have it. And we can't make changes or many changes based on what the audience reaction is until after the show. So I'm usually very excited and will write down all my notes to -hmm. the playwright and say, this is what I think you should look at for the future. When the next does that next playwright ever come to see the play here before it goes to him or her? Uh, yes, actually, uh, for Kissing Frogs, we flew in uh, the the director. I'm mean? sorry, the next director. Yeah, Thank uh, you. for uh, three views, we uh, filmed it for for David, uh, and I mailed that out to him so he can see what what worked and what didn't. The producing uh, artistic director of uh, Rogue Theater in L.A. that's producing cool. three views. Uh, he flew in to see it, to see what so he that wanted. That strengthens to the ties. Even yeah, more. so that's what makes it really cool about the PPPs. Look at all the people that, for you know, any given show, you know, that won our Woodward Newman Drama Award out of six hundred plays. That's the best one in the country, is what we're saying, or in the world. And uh, we're bringing the playwright in, the art, this artistic director in, who's going to do it next. The directors uh, attached to it in the future. We're bringing our own talent, some great people within Bloomington all a part of it to say, hey, this is what it is now. Let's make it better. We chain, made some edits. More edits came afterwards. They're about to do it. And, and that's not it when they're done with that. I mean, ultimately, we wanted to keep traveling across the country, get published and get done all over. So we're so tell me about step. the cycle of a play. So they somebody's entering either for drama, the Newman Woodward contest or the um, Reva Shiner Comedy Award mm-hmm. contest, right? Those are the two that are running that are national. International? Uh, yeah. yeah, they're international. Uh, we get plays from Australia, China, Czech Republic I've gotten, Greece. I actually have a playwright who constantly talks to me from Nigeria. Wow. Uh, so it's you'd be surprised at, at uh, the level of uh, you know global status it has. And you're getting upwards of a thousand submissions between the two? Between the two uh, a year. Uh, and then uh, th- that also uh, includes... Uh, musicals that I get submitted, agents submit me plays all the time, that kind of stuff. So we have a whole bit, a bunch to sort through. Just two of those are through contests, uh, the, the drama and the comedy contest. And then we have our new musical every year that we do with IU. Uh, I try to commission uh, a new play, which means that uh, rather than search for plays already made, we're paying money out to ask someone to write something. We did that with Bombshell last year. Like Jesse Eisenberg yeah. came, you know, wrote a new play for us. Jeff Daniels. I mean, these aren't people who are like, oh, well, we have this in, written and we're going to do that. They're writing it for the BPP, for the Bloomington community, some pretty significant names, which is great. And then we do um, what I call Off-Broadway on Ninth. Uh, <laughs> it saves you all the money from spending the trip to go to New York. We're going to bring it to you. But most of the uh, issues with new plays, you know, one of the issues is simply when a play gets produced, the world premiere is super exciting. And a lot of regional big theaters want that world premiere status. Mm-hmm. And it's often now hard to find that second production because you don't have that world premiere title. So we want to help foster uh, playwrights further by saying, you know, a new play doesn't need to be the world premiere We'll take the second or third production of something that happened, 
you know, uh, we're stretching what off-Broadway means, but, you know, whether it was in New York or whether it was in Boise, mm-hmm. for that matter, uh, we want to help a production that we think is really a great play but hasn't caught on to that national circuit yet and put the BPP machine behind it. You talked before about some of the things that stand out when you're looking at a new play in terms of engagement, in terms of relevancy for the community as well as Mm -hmm. uh, relevant just in terms of the time, uh, current issues. But when you're sorting through 500 or 600 or 700 plays, how do you do it? I mean, do you have a rubric set up? Do you have a lot of readers? Um, We do. Uh, Do you have markers in terms of what you know is going to jump off the page? Yes. Well, there's uh, one rule I always have is that you can't, no matter what the subject matter is, you can't teach anyone anything. You can't engage them unless you entertain them first. So it's got to be entertaining. Uh, I believe wholeheartedly in that. It's an entertaining medium. Uh, we, so how do you know if something's entertaining for you, you know, but how do you know it's going to be entertaining for me? Uh, I, I've done about 100 plays uh, now, and so I'm basically going on instinct on a lot of it saying, okay, okay this is my experience uh, reading this play. Do I have a vision for it? When I did Boy in the Bathroom... Uh, which was extremely successful for us, that was all picked based on uh, this vision that I had for how I wanted to stage it, how I can make it into And I saw it to be so entertaining when I did it in my head. There was a great set for that. Thank you. Yeah, it's Shane Seinel. He's brilliant. And But he and I worked very closely on what I wanted that to be and bringing it close to the audience and build around it. So entertaining was all in my head. And if someone else read it, they might have thought, mm, this, is, this is a boring script. It, it's all depending on the vision. And then when we have that many plays, we have about 40 readers for our for our contests. Uh, and with so many plays, we get synop- – We everyone has to send a synopsis in, and a bio and all that stuff. And I read all the synopses first and I, you know, highlight the ones that we want to look at the most. Uh, if it – I have certain things that uh, I'm going to – that's going to help me rule out a play. Um you know, based on subject matter, if it if it says the ghost of the, my mother in their synopsis at any point, I usually cross that out immediately. <laughs> I just don't want to see the ghost of anyone's mother. Uh, you know, I'm not interested in producing a, a one person show. You know, Why? I'm not engaged by them. I don't. Uh, I don't find it tells the story in the way that I want to hear it. It's not That's what we're about. Yeah, I'm just I'm just simply not interested. Uh, and uh, it doesn't mean they're universally bad. It doesn't at all. Just not my choice of what to produce. Uh, and uh, yeah, so there's there's certain criteria. Uh, there was a time where I got so many uh, with the keyword Iraq in it. And mm-hmm. ultimately, you know, you have to pick a time where is that the story I want to tell anymore? Uh, and we did, you know, bombshell. Right. You know, so I, how many of those can I put in? So there's certain criteria along that. Every play that we get, it's read twice. Uh, by our readers, and they get a rating from 1 to 10, 10 being the highest, and then they go onto my desk, and then I look through the synopses again and say, oh, why was I interested or not interested in this? I look at the scoring, and if I got you know a 1 and a 3, then I might read the f- opening page and say, mm, I can see where it's going. Or if it's most of the times like a 4 and a 9, and the two readers didn't, dis- you know, didn't agree, I've got to figure out and read it. I certainly can't read all of them straight through. So you sort of do the math and do the best you can. It's not an exact science. It just it's a lot of work and it's it's uh with anything it's just trying the best you can to make the best decision possible. I'm not always necessarily right. 
but I do know what I think is entertaining and what I mm-hmm. think the audience is going to like. And I could still pick that play that I th- still, at the end of the day, think it is, and, and hopefully we'll do the best production that makes people feel that way. Okay. But as we said before, the director can change the production entirely. So it's all collaborative, and during those ways, if you hit all those steps right, then you get that knockout show. You talked about um, rewriting with the playwright. How do you go about doing that? I mean, do you do you have do you produce the play as it is, and then sit with the playwright and say, "Let's think about how this could run more smoothly here," or what about if? Talk to me a little bit about that process. Well, uh, it starts with a good relationship with the playwright, and oftentimes, uh, first thing that you'll do is a reading of the play. Get some actors around mm-hmm. a table and read it and see how it sounds. Uh, then a stage reading. Get people up on their feet. Uh, we have a, a play that we're doing up at Indie Fringe uh, this summer that's uh, Lady Bits that Emily Goodson wrote that, you know, it's a local playwright who's been with us uh, developing that through two different readings that we've had and uh, notes back and forth and then ultimately we'll stage it. Maggie Cassidy was a good example of a play that uh, had a full reading with equity actors in Seattle. Uh, they had a, a recording that they did that I was able to listen to and then I sit down with it and say, well, you know, Chris, this is what I, you know, think needs, you know, work on my end. And that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what he has to do. It just means that this is my suggestion and I'm going to strongly, you know, stand behind that. Uh, so, for example, in the original production of Maggie or in the original script when I got it, the whole notion of um, Irish versus, yeah, I guess about Maggie Cassidy being Irish right. and, and Kerouac being French-Canadian it was uh, not a conflict. It wasn't that West Side story. And so there was nothing that was separating her from him. It was kind of like when he wanted her, he could have her. And then if there's no obstacle, then there's no dramatic action for us to watch. And so I went to him, tried to make that clear, and we added a whole lot that made it for me more engaging because there was something that I was rooting for to happen. There was Mm -hmm. that mystery and there was that desire for us to see someone succeed. The ending of the play skipped ahead to after um, uh, at the end, Maggie and him break. Maggie and Kerouac split apart, and then we would jump to five years later right. at the gas station, and uh, he ends up uh, realizing he should have gone uh, for her. Goes back to her home, and this, and now she's married to another guy, and he's upset. End of play, and that to me wasn't. You know, it was an ending that worked in some ways, but what I wanted to see was this American icon uh, who created, who who became something that no one else has ever become. It's like sort of Spider-Man who's learning his superpowers. Here's Kerouac who's learning to write in a mm-hmm. new way. I wanted to see that moment on stage, and I thought that's what our audience would really mm-hmm. uh, be engaged by. So that ending was all developed around she leaves him, and it leads him into that moment of realization of how he can express himself with his heartbreak uh, and he sees words and he hears things that he never heard before and now it all comes together through his loss and so we actually cut 10 minutes out of the play that way we connected that through line of his writing which we added more into the middle right. and beginning so that's a long answer to just identifying what could engage the audience and entertain them more and be what they want to fill them and then asking the playwright to say, hey, are you willing to take a stab at it? And they do. We go back. We read it. It never stops. 
Do you have, um, given your your collaborative nature and the idea of, of how much you've talked about creating the visual, do you have any desire to direct film? You know, I get that question a good bit. And I guess the answer is it'd be totally cool to be uh, someone like John Cameron Mitchell, who, who did um, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. He had a successful play and he went to Sundance and he learned how to uh, do film so he could turn that into a film. That's mm-hmm. a theater director directing film. That's interesting to me, but ultimately, I don't know the first thing about directing film. There's so many different things that you control that I don't touch, so I'd have to study and learn. So, yeah, it's interesting, but I'm, at this point, not intelligent enough. (laughs) Chad Rabinovitz is the producing artistic director at the Bloomington Playwrights Project, the only professional theater in Indiana that's focused solely on new plays. Thanks for being with us. I had a great time. This is fun. And we're going to listen to Don't Stop Believing by Journey. And uh, the reason you picked that wonderful Journey song, Chad? Because it makes me uh, feel like a, uh, like I'm rocking, and it'll leave everyone with this impression that I'm possibly cooler than I am. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. You've been listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm your host, Shauna Ritter. Thanks. The program you just heard was recorded in July of 2012. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.